You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. I could carve a judge out of a banana with more backbone than he. Dave Podner writes, in regard to the Anthony Kennedy cast, I don't want to be a conspiracy nut, but the idea of something as large as healthcare reform could be decided by so few could be a little off-putting. Well, thanks, Dave. And yes, I agree, it probably is off-putting where one justice or two justices decide things that have been debated by millions of voters, hundreds of congressmen and women, and then it's up to one guy. I suppose there are two things to say about this and put your fear in perspective. Healthcare reform got to the steps of the Supreme Court because it relied on a principle that is at least subject to question, that every person must, by mandate of the federal government, get insurance. It was a big step and ended up in the crosshairs of constitutional scrutiny. According to the Congressional Research Service, As of 2008, they list every act of Congress held unconstitutional from Marbury v. Madison in 1801, which held that the Judiciary Act of 1789 was unconstitutional, to the 2005 Detainee Treatment Act. So between that time, only 165 of the myriad acts of Congress, 165, were held unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. So it could be said that while the Supreme Court has a lot of power, they have been cautious about using that power. However, for supporters of health care reform, if you're one of them, past performance is no guarantee of future performance, as you know. And the record of not holding things unconstitutional often won't help. The Supreme Court seems to be on the mind of many elements rights in regard to the uh, podcast about Justice Kennedy, an interesting podcast. You might also look into justices who switch sides, not really switched, but who were appointed as conservative or liberal and then moved sharply to the center and perhaps beyond. Yes, it's a great question, Al. And, you know, the famous quote is, the biggest damn fool mistake I ever made. Dwight Eisenhower about his appointment of Chief Justice Earl Warren. Yes, Ike regretted his choice of the popular governor of California, who was the first Republican appointment in 20 years, yet turned out to be as liberal on uh, law and order issues and civil rights than the FDR or Truman appointees even. He didn't morph that much, though. Warren had been a moderate as California governor. On the court, he helped push the Brown First Board of Education, and it would be a mistake to think that it is on that decision, the school integration case, where he incurred the anger of Ike. 
The Eisenhower administration actually supported that Brown decision. But later on the law and order cases, Miranda and other things, that's what led to Ike's statement, I suspect. One thing that's clear, you never wanted to get on the other side of Theodore Roosevelt's insult. I could carve a judge out of a banana with more backbone than he. Roosevelt was speaking of his appointment of Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. As a judge, he had shown more sympathy for labor unions than others. So, maybe Roosevelt felt he's a supporter of a stronger national government and a government that could take on large trusts. But in U.S. versus Northern Securities in 1904, he dissented. He disagreed with the president and the decision that approved the government's action in taking on the Northern Securities Trust. Oliver Wendell Holmes would be a lot more independent than anyone would expect. Holmes, the son of a well-known poet in, in Shank versus United States, upheld the conviction of the head of the Socialist Party of America, one of the socialist parties that was against World War I. Some of those parties were for the war, and that had printed hundreds of thousands of flyers and leaflets urging people not to sign up for the draft. You cannot, he said, shout fire in a crowded movie theater. This was the same action. But then, just a year later, in Abrams v. United States, when we were now at peace, and a group of protesters threw leaflets from a window protesting our intervention in the Russian Revolution. He thought there that the government had overstepped and dissented in that case against a government that could sweep away opposition with law. It's suspected that the events of the Red Scare and the prosecutions that occurred had changed Holmes' mind. Though the circumstances of opposing a policy while we were at war and opposing a national draft versus opposing intervention in the Russian Revolution may have been a little different. Law and order was an issue important to President Nixon when he appointed his replacement for Earl Warren. That was Chief Justice Warren Burger. When Abe Fortas retired from the court, Nixon, after two choices were rejected by the Senate, went with Burger's friend from the circuit court, his fellow Minnesotan, Harry Blackman. Dubbed the Minnesota Twins, they initially voted together quite a bit, and more on the conservative side of law. But Harry Blackman authored Roe v. Wade and defended it all the way to the end of his career. And eventually, though he supported the death penalty in early rulings, later turned against it. Presidents have sometimes put trusted advisors on the court, as we discussed Abe Fortas, who had been on the court. He was Lyndon Johnson's advisor. Roger Tanney was a friend to Andrew Jackson and a cabinet member. Abraham Lincoln put David Davis, his good friend from Illinois, on the court. So Franklin Roosevelt put Felix Frankfurter on the court. And it was not shocking entirely at that time. As one of the architects of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, it was expected that Frankfurter would be a liberal. Frankfurter had helped found the ACLU after the government had conducted raids of suspected communist radicals in the 1920s. He had called for new trials for Sacco and Vanzetti, immigrants sentenced to death on murder charges in Boston, which had become a cause celeb. As a New Dealer, he suggested progressive legislation to the president. But he watched as the Supreme Court stood in the way of the president and Congress making law. So when FDR appointed him to the Supreme Court in 1939, that was his guiding principle. He wanted the court not to act where the Congress or president had unless they absolutely had to. Thus, 
he actually became more conservative justice by holding to that principle of non-intervention. In a 1941 decision, he upheld a statute requiring a Jehovah's Witness to salute the flag. In Dennis v. United States, he upheld the prosecution of the Communist Party, and he disagreed with more liberal justices, Hugo Black and William O. Douglas, who felt that the 14th Amendment meant the Bill of Rights should be applied to the states. So while he had a share of liberal decisions, Brown v. Board of Ed uh, signed on to immediately, Frankfurter did not turn out to be the liberal game-changer on the court that some expected. And personally, he was known for giving long lectures to his colleagues. He talks all the time, Earl Warren said of him. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances— I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right? is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep, about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. But I suppose he's an example of someone who surprised people based on his career before the court, but wasn't exactly a person who changed while on the court. Something else to discuss here. Is it always the justice who is changing? Or is it sometimes the court? And by the court, I mean not just the personnel on the court, but the cases that are being granted at any given time, that are getting cert and the court is seeing at that specific time. Can that make the court very different place? Gerald Ford appointed Justice John Paul Stevens in 1975, and this was his only appointment as a president. He was a jurist. 
and a Cubs fan from Chicago, a moderate judge when he was appointed. But given the changes on the court and the cases considered, he became associated with the court's liberal wing. But Stevens always considered that it was the court that changed and not he. On two issues, one big, one small, Stevens changed his mind. Upon entering the court, he ruled in favor of overturning the ban on capital punishment, which upon his retirement, he rejected. But it's not so much a change in his mind as he asserts. I felt the universe of defendants eligible in 1976 for the death penalty was so narrow, you could be sure that the punishment was appropriate in these cases. They were the most severe cases. But since changes in jury selection rules, like, for instance, allowing prosecutors to query about the jurist's belief in the death penalty and unseat the jurors that disagreed, and with the impact of victim impact statements before sentencing for the death penalty, that, in his view, increased the number of death penalty potential cases well beyond what he thought was a narrow group. So because of the changed circumstances, he said my vote in 1976 was incorrect. But he felt it was correct at the time. Stevens said he sometimes changed in the middle of a consideration of a case. In 1990, Illinois had a patronage system for political office. And at first, he kind of bought Antonin Scalia's line that uh, patronage was as old as the republic. But Stevens felt that didn't make it right. Evolving in his thinking, Stevens opposed any idea of a textual interpretation of the Constitution. The whole idea was to form a more perfect union. It wasn't something that was perfect to begin with, Stevens would say. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.